to Yosemite Podcast. I'm your host, Laura Jackson, longtime resident and interpretive naturalist in Yosemite, and I'm here to share stories and information from America's favorite national park, Yosemite National Park, in the heart of the Sierra Nevada mountains of California. Okay, so Yosemite may not be America's favorite national park, but it certainly is mine. Big surprise. And I think there are a fair amount of people who would say the same. Yosemite was in fact the first natural place in the world to be granted government protection from private land ownership and commercial development with the Yosemite Land Grant signed in 1864. It wasn't a national park at first, however. Yosemite Valley and the Mariposa Grove of Giant Sequoias were granted protection under the state of California, which had only been established as a state 14 years earlier. Just imagine everything that must have been happening around that time in the area. New state, a protected landscape, and that happening at the height of the Civil War. What a crazy, exciting, and tumultuous time in the United States. I imagine people back then were full of high hopes for the future. I imagine a lot of people were coming to California to start their lives over with dreams of striking it rich at the height of the gold rush. Or maybe they were just escaping something from their past. Whatever the reason, settlers were flocking to the western states in the middle part of the 19th century in droves. It was probably the single most significant time for change, good and bad, in the American West. So we had a lot of development taking place in California at that time. And Yosemite was developing right alongside of that. California and Yosemite kind of grew up together. They're one and the same almost, which means that there were a lot of ideas for how to protect and establish something as radical as a natural landscape that may have otherwise been stripped for its resources. What did that even mean at the time? What was being protected and who were we protecting this place for? I think about that a lot, especially now, because although the place is the same, the ideals for the purpose of Yosemite have certainly changed. Our priorities are so different today, and yet somehow our past actions helped keep the integrity of Yosemite maintained for our current era, and I find that remarkable and profound. So today we continue our story of the early trails and settlement of Yosemite and explore some of the motivating factors of those earliest developers. So this is part three of a four-part series. So again, if you haven't listened to parts one and two, I encourage you to start there to get the full context for this story, which is being told chronologically from the early 1800s to modern history in and around Yosemite. This story is being told by Yosemite storyteller Brian Shore, who has lived in Yosemite for many years and managed the High Sierra Camp at May Lake in the Yosemite High Country. Brian is a wealth of knowledge for the early days of settlement in Yosemite, and I recorded this talk on a backpacking trip that we had taken with the Yosemite Conservancy earlier this summer in 2021. The Yosemite Conservancy is a nonprofit group that leads trips like this one, where we backpacked out to a spot on Yosemite Creek to bag some easy peaks and dip into pristine swimming holes by day and gather around for storytelling at night. It was a really fun trip. If you want to know more about upcoming adventures and other programs offered by the Yosemite Conservancy, I will have more information about that at the end of the episode. But for now, here it is, part three of Early Settlement and Trails of Yosemite with renowned storyteller and naturalist guide, Mr. Brian Shore. So, um, so it was essential, still coming up and over that pass and into the 1870s, roads come into Yosemite. Roads come into Yosemite. And oh, things change as we we're able to bring in new equipment and develop uh, the commercialism in the park. And when the uh, Mr. Kenny in his stable says, hey, I need some hay for this winter, it's not just a string of mules. Now it's a freight wagon coming into Yosemite, carrying 10,000 pounds. 
Um, the next year, 1875, the third road comes into Yosemite from the south, the Wawona Road. In 1874, when the first two roads came in, the people in the south part of the park, the Washburn brothers, went, we're getting screwed because all the traffic is going to come through those other villages, Coulterville, um, Big Oak Flat, um, through Groveland. It's going to come in that way. We're going to lose all that commercial advantage. We need a road. So they hot-tracked it, and the, uh, they were given permission to start building. They hired uh, the Ridgeway Brothers out of Mariposa, and they hired 300 Chinese workers. Started one side, uh, 150 on one side, 150 on the other, and they started working their way towards each other. January 1st. That's terrible time to build a road. Can you imagine? The dead of winter, and it was a brutal winter that year. But come April, when the season was ready to open, that road, not done yet. <laughs> not done yet. There's still a thousand foot gap. That's incomplete. Not too bad, right? But they're working on it, those two groups, 150 on one side, 150 on the other. Nonetheless, the Washburn brother opened that up, and the season starts. And when the stagecoach gets to that first uphill side, on the uphill of what's known as Washburn Slide, those uh, Chinese workers come out, and they <laughs> take that wheel off. Kind of like that. <laughs> like NASCAR. <laughs> so uh, they take it apart. They take the coach apart. As everybody walks that thousand feet, they run with the parts down to the other side. Beep, 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 back together. And on they go. It becomes a novelty. you got to go the south way. They take apart the coach and then put it back together. That's pretty cool. Right? <laughs> By June, that road's completed. Just six months. It's amazing. Six months through the winter. How far is the road? 27 miles, I think. Yeah. Um, and, and actually, that's the old road. So it uh, could be a little bit farther than that. It was, it's, you can still see it. You can still visit it. Um, but even though roads are coming into Yosemite Valley and things are changing, new opportunities, um, but up here in Yosemite, up here in Tuolumne, the road is just a horse trail. Uh, even though miners have been coming up here for now decades, and, and in the late 1870s, there's over 350 mining claims, according to the local Homer Index. Throughout the Sierra, you guys could come up and make your strike, because we all have that mining experience. We know what we're looking for, right? And we come up into these 9,000-foot lakes and... See, me and you, you want to be partners? I lost all my guys, so I say. Um, and we'll just go mining and start pounding against the wall or pan. I don't even know how to do it. How do you choose? That looks nice. How do you choose where you're going to hit these spots? Over by Mount Hoffman, where I usually work, I know a little bit of that area there. And there is some indications of silver over there. They did start a silver mining district in 1878. I don't think they pulled anything out, but there's there are crystals and indications that that effect happened where heat created with the uh, the sedi uh, sedimentary rock off-gassed and maybe created silver. But it's pretty brutal. And if you do start pulling out silver, I don't know if I trust him anymore. <laughs> you know, what do you do with that ore? You bring it, you pack it on your mule maybe and bring it out to a bank 
because the banks in early California, Not pretty rough, pretty rough, uh, especially right after the uh, Civil War. Um, so, so, what do you do? You wait for a big corporation to say, hey, we're here to buy you out. And you go, that sounds good to me. Yeah. Give me some cash and I'll find some other place. And that's what happened. Uh, just at the end of the 1870s, 1880, a giant corporation ended up uh, setting up their mine up on Tioga Hill, where those original indications were. Yeah, up there, right on that hill. Tioga Hill, the great Sierra Consolidated Silver Mining Company. I wish they chose a shorter name, but they set it up and uh, they started developing a mine, starting with just, um, I think it was just 18 workers and some mules and equipment. They start mining into the side of that hill. Um, I'd be a hammer guy and I'm a lefty, so that would work. You get a righty on the other side, and then one of you guys is gonna have to hold the drill. <laughs> I'm not doing that. Um, pretty rough still, but they were developing it. Money from the east was coming in. They advertised that they had enough space up there for 20,000 miners to live up there and to work. And, and into 1881, they get a post office and they name one of the cities after the, uh, the chief engineer, uh, Mr. Uh, Bennett. So <laughs> Bennettville is born. And then a second, um, post office at Dana City, up above Bennettville, almost a thousand feet, which of course when I say it means 3,000 feet, but uh, not really. Um, all this mining activity uh, is looking promising, but really when it comes to the mine, they decide they need some heavier equipment and they ask their investors, trust us, we're California miners, what could go wrong? And send out some equipment and they send out um, I think it's eight or nine tons of gear, including boilers and Ingersoll drills and everything they're going to need. And it comes out in March, uh, March of 1881. Um, and in March in 1881, it shows up in Mono Village on the east side. And over there by Mono Lake in March, there's a heck of a lot of snow. And that was part of the plan. They would drag it up through the snow. So they start building sleds to take it up. One sled that they built weighed over 4,000 pounds that they're going to haul up. And they have to go nine miles. And it's going to be uh, quite a gain of elevation and lowering and gaining in March. And uh, they have uh, hemp rope, inch-long hemp rope. Uh, and they have a mule, a block and tackle, and they're ready to go. And they start hauling that stuff up, and the month goes by. And the uh, the foreman of the operation writes in his diary, This work makes men old. <laughs> brutal. So brutal. But eventually it gets up there, and they start mining into the side. Uh, drilling in to the side of Tioga Hill. You know, foot by foot. And that... that community of Bennettville develops and they have essayers office and bunk houses. It's getting bigger and, and now they're going to get that, that huge silver shelf. Probably the biggest silver shelf ever. At least that's what everybody always says during these mining booms. Ever! It's going to be great. And when we get to that silver shelf, then we're going to have to get all that ore out. How do we do it? 
well, it'll be easiest on wagons. Too bad we don't have wagon roads like they have in the valley by now. Well, I guess what we'll do is we'll just build our own. And in 1883, they appropriate about 63 or so thousand dollars, and they start building a road. And then they're looking about where they're going to set it up. <laughs> and it turns out there's previously a nice horse trail there that used to be an Indian trail called the Mono Indian Trail. So how about this? We set it up for Benneville. We'll just add a little bit. And when it gets down towards uh, where that Mono Pass Trail heads down towards Tuolumne, we'll use that trail. And, uh, and that's what they did. They start building the Great Sierra Wagon Road including Mr. Medlicott, the engineer. He's uh, surveying there. Um, but they did a great job on that road. Mr. Medlicott did fantastic surveying it, and they made the Great Sierra Wagon Road all ready for all that ore to ship out. But, of course, the following year, in 1884, you know what happened. $400,000 later, nothing. And they go bankrupt, and they shut down that whole mining operation but you can still see it right so uh, it became a ghost town Bennettville ghost town just like so many others if you don't go out the gate at Tioga Pass you can go to Gaylor Peak and go that one mile down to Middle Gaylor Lakes and then if you head up towards the top lake you can see the old uh, mining office up there below Dana Village so Dana Village is not really on Mount Dana it's not it's on uh it's below Gaylor Peak, you go to that lake, and if you keep going up on the trail that goes by that building, uh, you'll come upon Dana City, and it's a dangerous place to look. There's still mine shafts up there, but you'll see how brutal it was. Up there, 11,000 feet, rock walls. It, it is brutal. Um, but they build that road, even though they go bankrupt, and that road starts getting used into the 1880s, and by 1890, it's fallen apart. Uh, the people who own that road, who bought it from the sales of Bennettville, uh, they don't take care of it, but they don't charge tolls either. It's a private road. They could, and for a long time, that languishes in court. And even into the 1890s, what happens here in Yosemite? National Park. 1890, the cavalry takes over. And that's when the whole boundary of the national park is formed. Although Yosemite Valley and the big trees are little state islands amongst that immense park, but the cavalry starts patrolling this area. And in order to get up into the high country, what do you think the easiest way up here is? You know, they have essential work to do. So they come up the old Mono Indian trail, but now it's the Great Sierra Wagon Road and they come up and they do their essential <laughs> tasks. They need to protect resources here. Um, they need to um, develop trails here. Um, what else do they do? Kick people out, Sheep look good herders. in their uniform. Separate <laughs> the herder from the flock. Yeah, that takes, so they, uh, they don't have a lot of authority um, behind their actions and they can't seem to get these sheep herders in the high country to uh, leave. They're destroying meadows or so we think at that time. And, uh, and they come up with a plan in order to uh, rid those sheep herders. They bring the sheep out one side of the park and the herders out the other side of the park. And by the time they're reunited, there's a lot of loss. The season's uh, gone on for some time and it becomes economically not as viable. So they come up with a way to deal with the situation. And 
And their essential job, they use that old Mono Indian trail to get it done. Get it done. But the trail falls apart and they find themselves spending just as much time chasing sheep herders and scouting out trails as they do rescuing people on this road that's falling apart. Just give us some money. We'll get it taken care of at the beginning of the season. We're paying this much money just to rescue people. But they're pleased they go unanswered. That road gets worse and worse. And it's not till the end of the 1890s that they get a little bit of money from the government. But they stipulate that is for a new pass over to the east side. Mono Pass, you couldn't imagine driving over that. And by now, the road is completed over towards Bennettville. The old trail used to go out from Bennettville down to Lundy Canyon, where those guys pulled out millions of dollars, which kept everybody excited and going. Um, but they want to do a new road, and they decide on a place called McLean's Pass, but now we call it Tioga Pass. Um, and around 1902, they get Tioga Pass working. And by that time, Tioga Pass is the nicest stretch of... Uh, a road there is in that whole Trans Sierra now. Um, so it's in good condition, but the rest of the road remains kind of cruddy. Um, that battle continues with the cavalry trying to upgrade it, but it never works out for them. It's not until about 1915 that somebody comes to rescue the situation. A man by the name of Stephen Mather. Has anybody heard of him? Stephen Mather? Just a bit. Just a bit. Um, by the time Stephen Mather comes on scene, he is quite rich. Um, he is an advertising specialist, and you may even know his brand. You guys know 20 Mule Team Borax? Oh, right. yeah. Yeah, even now, 100 years later, you know his brand. He was pretty good at his job, huh? <laughs> so he had made his money in uh, 20 Mule Team Borax. And uh, by that time, 1915... He was working for the Department of the Interior. Uh, Secretary Lane was in charge. And uh, he asked for some of his friends to invest with him to buy that road. And they got $15,000 together and they were able to finally purchase the Tioga Pass Road. That old wagon road that was in such bad condition. Um, but they didn't get to work on it too much. Just a little bit so that they could drive up it for celebration. In 1913, cars were allowed into the park, and driving up the Tioga Pass was possible, was possible, but it was an adventure. Um, by 1916, um, people could drive up that way, and the cars sometimes even made it. <laughs> sometimes. You know, what happened then, it was open-air cars, a lot of them, and they'd chug their way up. But because of gravity, it wouldn't feed into that carburetor area. So they'd have to do a 100-point turn in the middle of the tire of the pass, the old one, and then work their way up backwards. And to be honest, usually it was the guy driving backwards up the Tioga Pass <laughs> while his wife sat over the edge with a 3,000-foot beautiful view. Uh. <laughs> can imagine it was a little stressful. <laughs> Um, so what happens? The next year, Stephen Mather complains about the state of the parks. I could do better than that. And his boss says, you got the job. You create some sort of government agency that's going to take care of these national parks. That's the short of it. They even say that he never asked his political affiliation. 
you imagine that happening these days? <laughs> no, are you Democratic or Republican? Of course, you'd know already. Um, but Stephen Mather, 1916, creates Park Service. A uh, pretty formidable job starting a government agency. And, uh, and he seems to be doing a great job. One of the moves he's going to make is donate that road to, to himself. <laughs> kind of, right? <laughs> and you, and you got to admit, that sounds a little fishy. And that's what the government thought, too. That sounds weird. Uh, I don't think so. And he had to eventually sell it, actually, for money. And, and the people in the United States divvied up the cost, $10, amongst themselves. And uh, that's how we ended up with the Tioga Road. Um, really the move of Stephen Mather uh, doing that. Thanks for listening to this episode of Little Yo Pod. Please join me in two weeks for the fourth and final part of this series when we will be wrapping up early trails and settlement of Yosemite with Brian Shore. So I wanted to elaborate on what Brian was talking about at the end of this segment, specifically when he mentioned Stephen Mather. I talked about Stephen Mather a bit on my Awani Hotel series from season two, but I really want to shine a spotlight on that man because he is one of my personal heroes and I talk about him a lot on my programs. So Stephen Mather was the first director of the Park Service in 1916. You see, even though we had national parks starting with Yellowstone in 1872, because Yosemite was a state park at first, remember, in 1864, uh, became a national park later on, um, we did not have a governing agency for them until much later. Before the NPS was created, the parks were looked after by, well, Yosemite was looked after by the Yosemite Commission, a group of people, a small group of people, about five or six, um, and also appointed guardians such as early park caretaker Galen Clark, who could arguably be called the first park ranger. <laughs> And the U.S. military, which at one time included the Buffalo Soldiers, the black military regiments that were formed during the Civil War. I also did an episode on the Buffalo Soldiers in Season 2, if you want to know more about their place in the National parks, They were pretty significant. So Stephen Matter was this wealthy businessman, an advertising man, really, and he made millions of dollars advertising and selling borax in the 18 and 1900s. But as the story goes, he was visiting the national parks out west, Yosemite and Sequoia National Parks, when he realized that the parks were going to be in trouble if they didn't have a more organized structure supporting them. So he did what everyone should do when they see something they love at risk. He wrote a letter and reached out to the person in charge of the parks, the Secretary of the Interior in Washington, D.C. Within a couple of years after he wrote that letter, the National Park Service was created and Stephen Mather was appointed as the first director. Now, I am in awe of this man because he did not want that job, but he did it anyway. I think he really just wanted to relax and enjoy his retirement hiking, camping, and fishing in Yosemite and Sequoia or other national parks. But instead, he built the infrastructure around the parks that would eventually increase accessibility for everyone. And by doing so, he ensured their protection for generations. So... As a person of modest income, speaking for myself, I think I have that man to thank for the fact that I can visit the national parks in America anytime I want to, because until, until Stephen Mather improved access, the parks were only accessible to people who had the time and money to get to them. It was not quick or affordable for most people to get to Yosemite before the 1920s after Mather was in charge. He raised money with fundraising efforts for the parks to build roads and bathrooms and lodging facilities, and he even championed educational and interpretive programs so people could really learn about and connect to the parks. And that's the work that I do today. 
Controversially, he even put up a lot of his own money to get projects funded, which would never be allowed today, and I don't think it was even allowed back then. But he did it anyway, and I'm grateful for his staunch commitment to getting things done, even though it meant breaking the rules at times. What I admire most about him is that he did that important work while he was battling a debilitating fight with depression and bipolar disorder. See, during his tenure as director of the Park Service, Stephen Mather had to be hospitalized for his disease many times. So while I think he would have preferred to enjoy his life peacefully, he never stopped fighting to protect what he loved. He wanted to make sure that people were going to care about Yosemite and every national park for generations to come, even though he personally suffered for it. And I think that is a great lesson for all of us and something we should be very grateful for. So I want you to ask yourself, what are the things that we risk losing right now? And what are we doing individually and collectively to protect those things? And could we do more? I think we are in one of the most important times for our species and every species on the planet facing the challenges presented by a rapidly changing climate. I don't see enough being done to address this crisis, which is indeed a crisis, and that upsets me and weighs very heavily on me. In Yosemite alone, we risk the real risk of the loss of a major water source, our rapidly shrinking glacier, in the next few decades, which means that the Merced River could run dry in many of our lifetimes. But just like Stephen Matter, we have the right and obligation to speak up and express our concern on behalf of the places we love. Stephen Mather didn't wait for someone else to take care of it. He did it himself, even when the work was hard and draining and unpleasant. We owe it to him to continue that legacy and demand the changes we need to make happen. We owe it to ourselves, our future generations, our favorite natural places, and every species on this unparalleled and amazing planet. I want to thank you for listening to this episode of the Leo Pod. If you like this podcast and you have a couple of minutes, please take the time to give us a rating and review. If you have any questions or comments, please send an email to littleyopod at gmail.com. Or you can message me on Facebook or Instagram. I am at littleyopod. If you'd like to know more about upcoming trips and the work being done by the nonprofit group, the Yosemite Conservancy, please visit their website at yosemite.org, where you'll find an abundance of information and ways to contribute to projects happening in Yosemite right now. If you want to channel your inner Stephen Mather and raise a fuss about something you're concerned about, like climate change and what is being done about it, do like Mr. Mather and write a letter to your elected officials and ask what they are doing to address that crisis. You can find all of your local and statewide officials on the website usa.gov, and I will leave a link to that page in the show notes for today's episode. All right, guys, that's going to wrap it up for this episode of Little Yo Pod. I'm Laura Jackson. Thank you so much for listening, and I will see you in